1: To find out, listen to Wamanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
2: podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming. Liz Cheney and many more so come on in take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations some of them I promise will actually put you in a good mood listen to next question with me Katie Couric on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
3: Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. It is hard to believe that the president of the United States could give a speech about the domestic threat to the continuation of our democracy and it wind up not being the most important story of the day, but it's not. But that's because the Department of Justice just gave Kash Patel use immunity, which gives us tangible evidence that they are this close to indicting Donald Trump over his nuclear kleptomania and all the stolen classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Patel testified to the documents grand jury last month and ran the table. He invoked the Fifth Amendment across the board. Whatever he didn't say, whatever they are convinced he knows about, is important enough to the prosecution of Donald Trump to convince Merrick Garland's team to basically give up on prosecuting Cash Patel. And remember, last summer, Cash Patel boasted about going into the National Archives, stealing all the documents there that related to Trump's election conspiracy with Russia, and then publishing them once a day on a website patel has previously insisted that he knows trump orally declassified all the stolen documents and clearly they asked him about that in front of the grand jury and instead of confirming trump's far-fetched story he took the fifth wouldn't answer because in doing so he might incriminate himself in short if i tell you the truth here you might be able to prosecute me with it And they do not roll the dice in cases like this. They clearly must believe that he is prepared to testify truthfully that Trump never declassified anything... And he was just afraid to say anything before he got the immunity, because after he went before the grand jury, the report was they did not ask him only about declassification. There were other questions about other topics, too. So five will get you 10 that they had asked him if he went through the classified documents with Trump or if he helped select the documents for Trump, if he read these classified documents that he should not have even known existed. And if he had answered truthfully to those or similar questions, he would have gone to jail and now he can return to the grand jury and tell the truth and nothing he answers about can be used to prosecute him. It is a virtual get out of jail free card. The one uncertainty here would be the possibility that they ask Patel, did you witness Trump orally declassifying these documents? And Patel says, yes, which would not necessarily kill a case against Trump, but would obviously hamper it because the willingness to grant Patel use immunity means this issue of declassification is really, really important to the Department of Justice, even if the reason why is not clear to any of us peering in the window. But then again, that same rule applies. They do not roll the dice in cases like this. They have to have evidence of some kind that the Trump declassified everything orally story is provably nonsensical. And if Patel says, yes, he orally declassified these documents, they then indict him for the only thing they could still indict him for testifying untruthfully or as we civilians know it, lying under oath. And it also cannot be a coincidence that the willingness to go this far with Patel follows by just five days. The news that the Trump documents team was joined by David Raskin, the prosecutor who helped to convict Zacharias Moussaoui on 9-11 conspiracy charges and convicted some of the 1998 U.S. embassy bombers. Raskin is also considered one of the top prosecutors in the country of espionage. If you will recall, we walked through the timing of all this. The DOJ does not regain full control of all those documents until December 16th. And even if they work over the holidays, the likeliest date of an announcement of a Trump indictment would be in the middle or the end of the first week of January. Say that Friday, Friday, January 6th. And that is a bigger story than Joe Biden's democracy in danger speech last night. All these years later, I still cannot believe that then-Senator Biden took me to lunch to ask me for my advice on anything but specifically on how to channel anger into righteous indignation. After last night, I don't know if my advice was too good or nowhere good enough. All of what he said in Washington last night was true and no danger was exaggerated. But the president needed to show the same kind of controlled rage he seemingly had mastered in his similar speech in Philadelphia in September. Sadly, I think Mr. Biden is still convinced in his heart of what so many of us were convinced of in 2016 and 2017. That if we just calmly and firmly explained to Trump's cultists that he was morally bankrupt and emotionally unstable, that enough of them would say, hey, you're right. I didn't think of that. And the saga Of the emperor's new clothes would have played out just as it did in the story it took us a while to realize that those people wanted morally bankrupt and emotionally unstable just as they now want people breaking into democrats homes and trying to assassinate them or if they aren't home zip tying their husbands and torturing them the people joe biden was pleading with last night are no longer capable of being reached I don't know what that means about the future of this country or what we do with them, but invoking American history and democracy to them is meaningless. Biden said the country is not zero sum where for somebody to succeed, somebody else has to fail. That's exactly what it is to MAGA and QAnon and Trump and the fascists and the Republican Party. And if we don't do something about them, they will resume trying to do something about the rest of us. The one positive spin that occurred to me about Biden's speech was that it might almost be read as a last warning, a last reasonable comment from a man trying to be reasonable and trying to cure America's ills peacefully and calmly. One last try, one last noble attempt to bring us together. Biden's speech was contrasted by the release of the message, from Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, the one he tried to get to Trump on January 10th, 2021, four days after the blood-curdling climax of the MAGA madness at the Capitol, quote, President Trump, you can save the Republic by doing your duty as commander-in-chief. Biden is an illegitimate Chinese puppet, He is about to get his hands on the nuclear codes and command all of our armed forces. You must use the Insurrection Act and use the power of the presidency to stop him. And all us veterans will support you. And so will the vast majority of military. If you don't, then Biden Kamala will turn all that power on you, your family and all of us. You and your children will die in prison and us veterans will die in combat on U.S. soil, fighting against traitors who you turned over all the powers of the presidency to. This is an American saying this. That is where we were 22 months ago. Guess what? It has not gotten better since then. Somebody asked me yesterday, now that the confirmation had come, that David DePapis is a full-fledged MAGA, Trumpist, QAnon, Pizzagate cultist, along with his admission that he did not know Paul Pelosi and that he planned to torture Nancy Pelosi until she told him some truth he wanted. What I was asked was how the right wingers still spreading conspiracy theories about the assassination attempt slime like Glenn Greenwald and Dinesh D'Souza and Tucker Carlson, how they would now be able to explain all that to the sheep who follow them. And I said that was easy. They would not explain all that to the sheep who follow them. They all lied about it. And the lies satisfied those people who wanted to be lied to. So why relitigate it? If any of the true facts somehow leak into the right-wing ecosystem, 911 tapes, confessions, police evidence, these things can be dismissed as a conspiracy, or as a cover-up, or as a body double, or JFK Jr., or Jesus said so. The last time it was this bad, the country broke apart and 600,000 of our ancestors died in a civil war. I would like to think there is a way out to avoid that, but I don't know what it is. I do know it is not a speech in which a president still tries to appeal to the patriotism and honesty of those who would vote for monsters like Kerry Lake and Herschel Walker and Donald Trump and a president who will say the democracy is imperiled but will not name the names of those who imperil it directly or stochastically. I am all for healing and forgiving, but the first rule of forgiveness is that the people doing the wrong thing have to stop doing the wrong thing before you forgive them. And right now, the people doing the wrong thing think Trump has gotten away with everything, which is why the Cash Patel immunity story was far more important than President Biden's speech. In sports, when I was a kid and first read of Don Larson's perfect game in the World Series in 1956, I was actually genuinely angry at my parents for not having me until 1959. I mean, the thought of such a thing, 27 men up, 27 men down, or even a no-hitter with a couple of walks in the World Series. That was enough to have me dreaming of time travel so I could go back and see it in person. When my mother told me that in 1956, Don Larson was dating a girl who lived on their block in the Bronx, I was rendered speechless. When in 1967, at the age of eight, I watched as Jim Lonborg of the Red Sox, a guy I had not known even existed six months earlier, and I watched as his lost World Series no-hit bid went away with two out in the eighth inning of Game 2, I was almost in tears in 1998, at a Yankees old-timers day, I got to work alongside the man who did the play-by-play of Larson's Perfect Game on network radio, Bob Wolfe. We did the PA announcing for old-timers day. It took 20 minutes. Even then, when I was 39 years old, I got chills just working with the announcer who announced that game. Last night, Christian Javier no-hit the Philadelphia Phillies for the first six innings of game four of the 2022 World Series for the Houston Astros, and then they took him out, throwing a no-hitter in the World Series. He'd only thrown 97 pitches. They took him out. I know it's old-fashioned to talk about this. They took him out of a no-hitter in the World Series. Brian Abreu, Rafael Montero, and Ryan Presley finished up the no-hitter. The Astros won five-zip to even the series at two games apiece, and this is how meaningless baseball has rendered what should have been and would have been one of its most spectacular accomplishments ever. Long ago, it ruled that the only no-hitters that counted as no-hitters were ones thrown by only one pitcher. And how often do you ever see a game of any kind in which one team uses only one pitcher? So that thing last night, that was not a no-hitter. It was a a nothing of some sort. Still ahead, Elon Musk analogizes the $8 fee for Twitter verification to spending $8 at Starbucks, which only works if the Starbucks he goes to hands him a cup of coffee, and then hands him $8 as payment for drinking the cup of coffee. Anti-Semitism in the NBA and the league that always gets these things right gets this one horribly, horribly wrong. The league and Kyrie Irving try to buy their way out, and for a million dollars, they didn't even get an apology out of Kyrie Irving. And this will be the last edition of Things I Promise Not to Tell Before That World Series Ends even if it goes seven games and there are three more combined no-hitters. So I have to tell you this story now. The 2000 World Series, Roger Clemens throwing Mike Piazza's broken bat at or near Mike Piazza. I, interviewing Roger Clemens, I get a piece of the bat. Piazza threatens to sue me over the piece of the bat. Pull up a chair for this one. It takes a while. It's next. This is Countdown. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
1: Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about Indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanika on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: to start
3: listening. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Still ahead on Countdown, worst persons and the NBA's attempt to buy its way out of the Kyrie Irving anti-Semitism disaster. And before this world series is over, let me tell you of my 22 year long adventure with Roger Clemens, Mike Piazza and the Mike Piazza broken bat, which Clemens threw and about which Mike Piazza threatened me and threatened the owner of the Boston Red Sox. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need whom you can help. Every dog has its day. This time, it's Leah from Staten Island. She is a Sharpe. You do not see a lot of Sharpays in trouble. But first, her humans underfed her. When she naturally got sick, they threw her from a still-moving car and drove away. Leah then wandered the streets for days until Near and Far Animal Rescue collared her, took her in. A full recovery is expected, but it won't be quick. She's got some profound infections. Near and Far is doing a rescue for Leah on Cuddly, so if you can donate, you can find her there, or she will be the pinned tweet on my account for dogs in need, at TomJumboGrumbo. Your pledge will be gratefully welcomed, as will your retweet of Leah's story, and thank you. Screwing around with the format, now the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Our bronze, Elon Musk. Every day you wonder a little bit more how this guy can find his way through anything more complicated than a revolving door. The Washington Post is reporting he will introduce video behind a paywall On Twitter, within a couple of weeks, all users of Twitter will see an image or some video, but with a message saying, Pay $1 to see more. Congrats, Elmo, you just invented OnlyFans. And defending his intention to charge $8 a month to verify a user of Twitter, Musk sent out a meme of somebody smiling at an $8 cup of Starbucks, but the same person crying at an $8 price for blue check mark. Doesn't seem to have occurred to Musk that at Starbucks, the person who makes the content, the coffee, gets paid to make the content, the coffee. But on Twitter, the person who makes the content of the site will now have to pay to make the content of the site. He's just not bright. The bronze Shane Goldmacher of the New York Times. The White House announced the president would give a speech about threats to democracy yesterday morning. It was in all the newspapers, including the Times. Speech about democracy. They then released excerpts a couple of hours before his speech. A speech about democracy. As the speech ended, Times national political reporter Goldmacher put out this update two topics that didn't make biden's primetime presidential speech the economy and inflation democracy is clearly what biden wanted to talk about no the quality of our news media is just fine we're not short of smart reporters why do you ask but our winners the national basketball association commissioner adam silver and the brooklyn nets The NBA usually gets it right. I mean, they have a great track record. But in this disaster, with Kyrie Irving of the Nets and his blatant anti-Semitism in public, they have screwed it up royally. First, Irving supported an anti-Semitic book and film. Then, when challenged by a reporter, he issued a threat, quote, I'm not going to stand down on anything I believe in. I'm only going to get stronger because I'm not alone. I have a whole army around me. The NBA's response to this, the league and Kyrie Irving will now each donate $500,000, quote, towards causes and organizations that work to eradicate hate and intolerance in our communities. And Irving will work in some unspecified way with the Anti-Defamation League for the, they're not clear about what he's going to do. It's going to, they just threw out the name Anti-Defamation League. $500,000, it's a charitable donation. Kyrie Irving's salary is $35 million this season. That's a little over 1.4% of his salary find deductible. That'll show him. Adam Silver in the National Basketball. I got it. Let's try to buy our way out of this association. Today's worst persons in the world. Before the World Series ends, I have to tell this thing I promise not to tell, because by the time of the next one of these segments, no matter how long it lasts, the World Series will be over. So here is our number one story, Things I Promise Not to Tell, and my favorite topic, me... And the series will be over, which is more than I can say for this story, which is chronologically and in terms of storytelling time, the longest one of these I can not only imagine having told, but ever telling. It started on the night of October 22nd, 2000, and it ended, well, I'll let you know if and when it ever ends. I was enjoying the second night of one of my childhood dreams come true. I was the host, not just of the telecast of the World Series, but it was an all-New York City series, a Mets versus Yankees series, a Subway series. I'd literally dreamt of it since 1967. The manager of the Yankees had been the first person I ever interviewed on TV. Fifteen years earlier, I had worked with him in TV. He was a friend of mine. I had just covered the Mets through their playoff run and knew all of their players. My face had been on an advertisement in dead center field in the Mets stadium for the entirety of the year before, and the players all knew me by name. Where we were that night, Yankee Stadium, was not only where I saw my first baseball game, but was about seven-eighths of a mile from the hospital in which I had been born. And my first home was four subway stops away. The night before this event, as I hosted the start of the first game of this Keithapalooza, I was supposed to introduce the public address announcer of Yankee Stadium, Bob Shepard, whose voice I had heard nearly every day since I was eight years old. So he could then introduce the players and this epic World Series would begin. And it dawned on me in the seconds before I was supposed to do this, that I literally had the power to stop the 2000 World Series from ever happening. If I just kept talking and never actually said, here is Bob Shepard, well, I could delay it briefly until they cut my mic off and then fired me on the spot. Anyway, this was game two. And now that our pregame show was over and I had waved to my mother, who had seen her first game at Yankee Stadium just, ooh, 66 years previously, and she was seated in the family seats that were just nine rows up from our on-field set, I had crawled into the position I would assume for the entire game as the dugout reporter. I was hunched over on a stool, squeezed between the far end of the Yankee dugout and our Fox Sports first base camera. A thin chicken wire fence separated me from the dugout itself. In fact, it was a formality. I was more or less in the dugout. Players, coaches, and that night as I settled in, my friend the Yankee manager all came over to say hello. Roger Clemens of the Yankees, who I had also known since we were both rookies in Boston sports in 1984. He lasted. I didn't. Roger Clemens had struck out the first two Mets hitters. Clemens was a strange man about whom I had heard a strange tale of teammates in a college summer baseball league who were all wearing their wallets in their uniform pants back pockets during a game Because one of them explained to a friend of mine, we have this crazy kid Clemens from Texas on this team and we don't trust him. In Boston, I had found him a little nervous, a little standoffish, but doing his best to be professional, but by now, there were rumors swirling around Roger Clemens about amphetamines and performance-enhancing drugs, and you knew not to talk to him before or after a game unless you had to, and if you had to, you chose your words very carefully and made sure that whatever you did, you had to start with something mundane, like the score of the game, and if you could let him bring up anything controversial or complex, he would then probably do it. So now, as this game continued after two batters had struck out, Lee Mazzilli, the former Mets star, now Yankees coach, another friend of mine, was on the other side of my, like a little fence. And as Mets superstar Mike Piazza stepped in as the third batter of the game, Mazzilli leaned in and said conspiratorially, let's see if Rod flips him again. In midsummer 2000, Roger Clemens had beaned Mike Piazza with a fastball. There was a hospital visit involved. Nobody was convinced it had not been intentional or that Clemens would not do it again, even though it was the World Series. Mazzilli and I leaned forward. Piazza was a deeply complicated guy, too. During the playoffs, he had walked up to me and asked me if it was true I was from New York, and then he quizzed me about the relative merits of the suburbs, and then he wanted to know if I had really taken up residence in his favorite Southern California hotel, and we talked for 15 minutes about that. The next night, I saw him, smiled, said hello, and he looked at me like I had just sworn a vendetta against his family. For a long time, I thought it was me, until about 10 years later, the great Vin Scully said that Piazza was with the Dodgers, and when they were both together there in Los Angeles, Vin had had the identical experience with Piazza. Best friends on the team bus one day, and then no indication Piazza remembered even meeting him the next. I mean, that was Vin Scully. Clemens, as it turned out, did not throw a baseball at Piazza, but instead pitched him inside, in on his hands. And Piazza tried to stop a swing that was half self-defense, but instead, the odd angle and the force of the pitch shattered Piazza's bat. The ball veered to the right, describing a circle into foul territory. The head of the bat shot out towards Clemens on the mound. A second piece flew briefly into the infield. Piazza was left holding just the handle, and it looked as foolish as that sounds, but lost in this description is the fact that that all happened at once. And even from our sign angle in the Yankee dugout, it looked to Mazzilli and me as if Piazza's bat had simply exploded, like it was a trick device of some sort. I saw Clemens reach for the baseball. I thought it was the baseball right in front of him. And then just as quickly, he and I at the same moment realized it was not the baseball. It was the barrel of the bat, which was slightly rounded, just a little darker than a baseball, but could in the heat of an instant following a bat explosion, it could be mistaken for a ball. So far, so good. But right then, Clemens, realizing it was part of a bat and not a ball, promptly threw that part of the bat at me. Jesus, Maz, I said to Mazzilli, why did Clemens throw that bat barrel at me? The Yankee coach looked incredulously at me. He didn't throw it at you. He threw it at me. That's what it looked like. We were lined up perfectly. If Roger Clemens had thrown the barrel of Mike Piazza's bat, say, 120 feet, instead of just six or seven feet, he would have hit either me or Lee Mazzilli in the Yankee dugout. As it was, since nobody knew exactly what was happening, Piazza had started to run down to first base in case the ball was fair. He didn't know where the ball was either. For that initial split second, you really couldn't tell which flying object was the ball and also whether the ball was fair or foul. So Roger Clemens' throw certainly looked like it was aimed at Piazza as Piazza went down the first baseline and as Piazza took umbrage and there was another split second of confusion when it looked like Piazza might charge out to the mound to try to sock Clemens for this and for the midsummer beaning. I said to Mazzilli, wait, did he throw that bat at Piazza? Mazzilli just shook his head. I don't think so. Who in the hell knows? He's been here two years. I haven't figured out anything he's done so far. As the umpires then got involved, Clemens repeatedly tapped his own chest, and not in a bragging way, but in a kind of what looked like that's on me way. Two bat boys collected the three main pieces of the bat and a bunch of smaller shards, some of them smaller than a toothpick. The Fox play-by-play man threw it to me in the dugout. Well, I said, I can tell you the Yankee dugout doesn't know what happened or why, Joe. Mazzilli laughed quietly and then hit me in the arm while I was on the air. I postulated that Clemens was looking for a ball hit back to him, instead found the piece of the bat and then discarded that piece of the bat so he could keep looking for the ball. That he discarded it kind of where Piazza was running might have been deliberate, might have been a coincidence. I do remember suggesting that if Clemens had really aimed the bat at Piazza, that from that distance, with the strength and accuracy of a major league pitcher, he clearly would have hit him with it. Piazza then promptly grounded out to end the inning, and as Clemens came back towards the Yankee dugout where Mazzilli and I were, he again stopped to talk to the umpire, who's Charlie Relaford. Over the noise of 56,000 fans at Yankee Stadium, I couldn't hear a damn thing. But it sure looked like Clemens was again saying, that was on me. I asked Mazzilli if he could find out if that's what Clemens was doing, and half an inning later, Mazzilli reported that Clemens indeed thought for a second it was the ball and that he threw it and that it was on him, and that it was not intentional, and it was not directed at Piazza. Now I did something kind of stupid. I suggested to my bosses that I should go ask the commissioner of baseball, who in a World Series game had the power to eject any player for any reason, although that power had not actually been used since 1934, what he thought of all this. The producer said yes, and I thought, me and my big mouth— I now had to crawl out of that little space between camera and dugout, and I mean literally crawl, hands and knees, to exit back into the seats via where the groundskeepers kept all the extra dirt. I knew where in the stands the commissioner was sitting. I went there. I got to him. I asked him. He assured me there was no discipline coming for Clemens, and they'd look at the tape of the game again that night or in the morning, but he really didn't think Clemens had tried to hit Piazza with the bat. Well, they would look at the tape and they decided both that Clemens did not try to hit Piazza with the bat and that he should be fined $50,000 for, I don't know, not trying to hit him with the bat? So I made it back to the dugout, reversing my crawl like I was recreating the movie The Great Escape. As it turned out, Piazza's little squib shot that caused all the trouble with the exploding bat was about the hardest thing they hit off Clemens all night. Over eight innings, he struck out nine Mets batters. He walked none. He gave up only two hits, and he only hit one batter. And then, incredibly, after Clemens left the game, the Yankees almost blew a 6-0 lead in the ninth inning. A Met outfielder named Jay Payton hit a three-run homer off future Hall of Famer Mariano Rivera, And the Mets had a chance to tie the game or go ahead off Rivera in the top of the ninth. And then he got out of it. And the final score was six to five Yankees. And with the game over, now it was Keith interviews Clemens time. I went to the prearranged spot at the other end of the Yankee dugout where another friend of mine, the Yankees PR director, had guaranteed me he would go and get Clemens and they would emerge after Clemens left the clubhouse to do what was a contractually obligated interview with Fox and me. Apparently, Roger Clemens started making his way towards me the moment the Yankees finally won that game. Unfortunately, at that exact moment, security closed the only runway from the Yankee dugout to the clubhouse so that a dignitary could use it as an exit from his seats. The dignitary was Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, noted front-running Yankees fan and ticket freeloader, And while Fox literally delayed the start of every newscast on every one of its stations in the country, even on the West Coast, and Joe Buck and Tim McCarver kept showing replays again and again and promising my interview with Roger Clemens, Rudy Giuliani took his goddamn time leaving the field. His idiot son, Andrew, grabbed some dirt from the field. I half expected him to eat it. Instead, he stuffed it in his jacket pockets. Giuliani now waited for his entire entourage, one of his wives... Some of his, I guess they were friends, assorted political riffraff. And as my producers screamed in my ear, where is Clemens? Giuliani waited until they were all together on the field. And finally, he marched them down into the dugout and up through the runway. And after all this delay, Clemens came out. And finally, I could ask him about throwing the bat shard at or near Piazza. And at that moment... I remembered what I had learned about Clemens in Boston. If you started an interview with something controversial, he might very well walk away. If, on the other hand, you did the boring game outcome question, he would answer anything you asked, and he might even bring up anything controversial himself. But you had to do the stupid game stuff first. So, which was harder work, Roger, I asked. Eight innings of two-hit ball or watching the Mets nearly tie it in the ninth? His answer was not bad, but he did not bring up the bat. So I asked another question about what he thought of his performance in that game. Well, that did it. He started talking about having to overcome his emotions in the first inning. And now I could say, well, since you brought up the emotions, the bat throwing incident, did you throw that piece of broken bat at Mike Piazza? There is a freeze frame from that interview in which Roger Clemens' eyes are bugged wide open. Well, Clemens basically confirmed what the guys in the dugout had told me he had told them. You can believe him or not, but he thought the thing he grabbed was the ball. And when it wasn't, he threw it away just in case the ball was somewhere else near him and he had to have a free hand with which to pick it up. He explained the chest taps. He was indeed saying to the umpire, umpire Charlie, as Clemens called him, accompanying his apologies to the umps for throwing the bat. He said he didn't even know where Piazza was at the point he threw the bat. It was as straight and nonpartisan, and frankly, as informative an interview as I've ever conducted. Meanwhile, everybody else in that stadium, everybody else in that city, everybody else in the tri-state area was convinced of one of only two things. Roger Clemens had tried to impale Mike Piazza with a shard of his own bat, or... The Mets were crybabies who could not tell that Clemens obviously did not try to impale Mike Piazza with his own bat. There was no middle ground. I found this out specifically the next day when the TV sports columnist of the New York Times, Rich Sandemir, who was a friend of mine, called to interview me about the interview. Why didn't you ask him about the bat first? Nobody cared about how he pitched. He threw a bat at at, at Piazza. I said, you're a Met fan. And I explained the theory of not making Clemens end an interview before he said what you needed to know. I went through the whole thing I just recited here. It was amazing to see those few days how every sports reporter and columnist in New York self-identified as either a Met fan or ex-Met fan or a Yankee fan or ex-Yankee fan. And you can still see it today as this story from 22 years ago is recollected by others. They wrote what they felt as kids. Clemens was the victim or Clemens tried to kill Mike Piazza like he was a Dracula and they had the wooden stake to go through his heart. Meanwhile, we learned recently from Joe Torre, the Yankee manager, another one of my friends, that they all hid something from us that night. The thing about emotions, after the incident in the first inning, Roger Clemens went back to the Yankee clubhouse and started to cry this might have had something to do with embarrassment or grief, but since he had noted that he had had to check his emotions, I always thought, well, he might have been a little over amped for that game, naturally or otherwise. All right. So before I present anything else out of chronological order, let me go back to the moment. I thanked Roger Clemens for the interview and threw it back to Joe Buck and Tim McCarver in the Fox booth, because this is when the real trouble started. They were pretty much done for the night, but I had another two hours to go in a live postgame show on Fox's Cable Sports Network. We had about four minutes until that show started, and it suddenly occurred to me that although this was not the most important event in the history of the World Series, the bat would become part of the iconography of baseball. I had been at Yankee Stadium often enough over the years to know the two kids who ran the visiting clubhouse. And right then, they were still packing up the Mets bats and equipment in the Mets dugout. So I ran over and asked the senior of them, what happened to the pieces of the Piazza bat? The answer to that question has haunted me for 22 years. It resulted in me being threatened with a lawsuit by Mike Piazza. The owner of the Boston Red Sox said he was threatened by Piazza over the same bat. And then came the moment during that World Series that Mike Piazza confronted me and we talked about restaurants. The rest of this crazy story after this.
0: Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.
2: Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess the 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again, the First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about Indigenous women's disappearances, and the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app,
0: to start listening
3: so back to our number one story on the countdown and the saga of the night in the 2000 world series and all the nights since when the bat of mike piazza of the mets shattered shadooby and Roger Clemens of the Yankees picked up the barrel of that bat and tossed it at him or just tossed it away, having mistaken it for a baseball or made up a story that he had mistaken it for a baseball. And I was in the Yankee dugout as the reporter, and I was hosting the game for Fox, and I interviewed Clemens afterwards. And then before our two-hour postgame show on cable, I went over to the Met dugout and asked the clubhouse attendant there, what happened to the pieces of Piazza's bat? Well, the guy explained that Bobby Valentine, the Mets manager, had asked that one of the pieces go to a friend of his in the stands, and he, the clubhouse attendant, had handed it to the guy. A second piece, he believed, was kept by the Yankees. He wasn't sure about that. The third piece, the handle, was, where was it? Where is it? He asked the other attendant. It's here in the garbage, the kid said. I did a double take. The garbage? Yeah, the kid said, under the dugout bench, and there it was. Stuffed in amid all the empty bags of sunflower seeds and the crushed Gatorade cups. I said, what happens to it now? Gets thrown out. They clean out the dugouts first. So I said, look, can I borrow it? This would make a great prop for our postgame show. And the attendant says, sure. And he pulls it out of the pile and hands it to me. Just about seven inches of a baseball bat. And all there is is Piazza's uniform number 31 written in magic marker on the bottom. Listen, I said, I I won't be able to bring this back to you for like two hours. We're on for two hours. Will you still be in the clubhouse? And he said, are you kidding? We have to be here at eight. He and I will be out of here in 10 minutes. And I said, you want me to bring it back to you for game three? And he says, garbage? You're going to bring back garbage? Throw it out. Keep it. Whatever. What do I care? So I used the bat fragment as a prop in the show repeatedly. And I stuck it in my shoulder bag. And I thought, I'm not a scrounger but this is a valuable piece of memorabilia, and I'd like to keep it. So I'll either I'll auction it off for charity and bid against myself or something, or I'll make a donation to a baseball charity, and I'll keep it, and that was it. And two days later, as the World Series shifted from Yankee Stadium to Shea Stadium, I got a phone call from one of the PR guys at Fox Sports. Did you see the paper? And I said, no, not yet. And he says, Piazza told the guy from Newsday that you stole his bat, and he wants it back. And I said... What? If I hadn't asked about it, it would be on a garbage scow right now being towed out to be dumped in the Atlantic Ocean. And he says, maybe. But Piazza told this John Heyman he's going to sue you to get it back. So now I go to the ballpark with extra excitement on my plate. I'm waiting for Mike Piazza to tell me he's going to sue me. So I go out onto the field. I'm wondering how long it's going to be before I run into Piazza. And like two minutes after I step on the field, I turn around and he's walking towards me. and He looks at me and he says, hey, Keith, wild one the other night, huh? Say, listen, when you lived at Shutters, did you ever eat at Ivy at the Shore in Santa Monica? Nothing about the bat. We're talking about restaurants in Santa Monica, California. And I say, well, yeah, but did you ever eat at Shea Jay's? And a big smile from Piazza. Oh, man, I love Shea Jay's. I love Jay. Give me your number this winter when I'm home. Let's go eat at Shea Jay's. And I said, I'll pay for it, and I'll order the sand dabs. Now we're talking about sand dabs, how to prepare sand dabs at a restaurant. And then he says, hey, sorry, I got to go hit. Have a good show. That was it. He's in the paper threatening to sue me. We see each other on the field. He starts the conversation no mention of suing me. Not one word. Next day in the paper, more Piazza quotes about how he's going to sue me for stealing his bat. Next night, game four of the World Series, we're just about to go on the air with the pregame show, and now Piazza comes over again, coming in from the outfield to the dugout, and he says, hey, this must be really cool to do what you guys are doing. Have a great show. And by now, the only thing I can think of, he does not know I'm the same Keith Olbermann he keeps threatening to sue. So the World Series ends and the Yankees beat the Mets. And if you look for it, there's this photo of the traditional post-game awarding of the World Series trophy and the Most Valuable Player Award. And it's Commissioner Bud Selig and Derek Jeter of the Yankees and me. And just before it happened, George Steinbrenner was the owner of the Yankees. He's crying and he leans in and I give him a hug and reassure him. And he asks me if my mother went to the game. And I said, you know my mother, she'd never come to Shea Stadium. She hates it more than you do. And he says i love her more than ever before now so the series ends and it's not been that great a series but it's been exciting and it was the dream from my childhood and the yankees have won and my friends are happy and i've not heard another word about this lawsuit nothing from mike piazza and i told the fox people well if i'm not going to hear anything more from them it's easy i'm going to keep the bat and i'm going to donate twenty five thousand dollars to this charity, the Baseball Assistance Team, which helps ex-ball players in financial need because, A, I'm not a scrounger. B, it's a great cause. C, that's actually much more than the bat handle would be worth on the open market. And D, the acronym for the Baseball Assistance Team is B-A-T, BAT. And that's perfect. It's about Piazza's BAT. You get it? And then nothing for a month whereupon Fox gets another letter now from Piazza's agent, a fellow named Manzon, and he threatens to sue again, and that's the end of it. Never heard from him again. So now it's the next year, 2001, and I'm back in New York working for CNN, doing the news, and I go to a Mets game, and I see Piazza, and I give him a big smile, and I offer my hand, and I say, still owe you those sand dabs from Shea Jay, and he just stares at me and walks right past me. And I see a cop I know who works next to the Mets dugout. And the cop says, Mike has been asking him about me. Is that Keith Alderman, the one who stole my bat? So now I'm not just keeping the bat. I want to sue Mike Piazza for being a pain in the ass. And then 9-11 happens. And ballplayers are doing charity things. And sportscasters and newscasters are doing charity things. And I think, well, this is the time. When the baseball season resumes, I throw the bat handle in my bag and I go out to a Mets game and I go up to Piazza's locker before the game and I pull the bat shard out and I say, take this, Mike, auction it off for charity. Let's do some good with this. Or if it's too much trouble, you sign it and I'll auction it off. We can leave my name out of it, whatever you want, however you want to do it. And he looks at me like I've just insulted his mother and says, no, it's too complicated. And he turns away and I think to myself, this is is the strangest athlete I have ever met. And just before the season ends, I go to another Mets game. Now this time it's one of his teammates who takes me aside and says, you know, Piazza never stops talking about you stealing his bat from the Clemens game last year. He says he still wants to sue you. Didn't you try to give him the bat back in the clubhouse to auction off? Didn't I see that? And I say, yeah, I did. And he refused to take it. And the guy laughs and he says, great player, excellent catcher. I love him. Strangest player I have ever met. Comes 2002, nothing happens. See Piazza at several Mets games, nothing happens. 2003, nothing happens. Now, I can't pin the year down on this. It's one of the Red Sox-Yankees playoff series, either 2003 or 2004, and I'm leaving the field as they're clearing the media off just before the game starts. And I'm going out through the Red Sox dugout, literally at the same spot where the kid handed me Piazza's bat handle three or four years earlier, where the trouble all began. And I see the new owner of the Red Sox team approaching from the other end of the dugout. Keith, jo- John Henry, nice to meet you. Have you got a minute? And I said, well, yeah, they're, they're kicking the media off the field. So, And he laughs and he says, I can take care of that. And he yells at the plainclothes cop. And he says, he's with me. And the cop nods. And John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox and I, sit down on the Red Sox bench before the start of a Red Sox-Yankees playoff game. And there are no other reporters out there. And I think, OK, what did I say about the Red Sox? What is he pissed off about? Instead, John Henry says, can I ask you about Mike Piazza? And I laugh and I say, sure, what about him? And he says, you have part of his bat from the World Series with Clemens, right? And I say, yeah. And he says, tell me the whole story. So I do what you've just heard. And John Henry says, that's what I was told. Thank you. Huh? I thought it was me. So that other piece of the bat that was handed to a friend of Bobby Valentine's during that game, that friend is a great friend of mine. And after 9-11, he said, wouldn't it be great to get Mike Piazza to sign this and then we can auction it off for the victims' families or the cops or some other charity? And he gives me the bat and I call the Mets and they approach Mike and they call me and they say, Mike loves the idea and I should come to one of the spring training games and he'll sign it. So the next March, I go to one of the Mets spring training games and I go up to him in the clubhouse and I introduce myself and he looks at me like I'm from Mars and I say, well, I brought the bat. And he says, what bat? And I explained that we had arranged to have him sign the bat from the World Series for a 9-11 charity. And he erupts at me. I'm not signing that bat. Sure, for charity. You think I was born yesterday? And now I say something to John Henry, owner of the Red Sox, like, welcome to the club. Did he threaten to sue you too? And he laughs and says, yes, that's the next part of the story. So while we're trying to straighten that out, His agent calls me and asks if I will give them the bat to auction off for charity. And I say, sure. And I go to another Mets game and I go to the clubhouse and I have the bat again. Now Piazza says, no, I can't take the bat because of pending litigation. But if I want him to, he'll sign it for me. All I have to do is come back a couple of weeks later. So this is what I wanted to ask you, Keith. Is he the strangest ballplayer you've ever met or is it just me? There's one more part to this. Flash forward to 2014. I still have the Piazza bat handle, the one I unsuccessfully tried to give back to Piazza. The middle portion, the one John Henry unsuccessfully tried to give back to Piazza, has been sold with the proceeds going to charity. So where is the third piece, the barrel of the bat, the part that Clemens threw at Piazza if you're a Met fan or was unfairly accused of throwing at Piazza if you're not a Met fan? And the answer finally arrives in a sports memorabilia auction catalog that year. While one of the visiting bat boys was handing the middle part of the bat to a friend of Bobby Valentine and John Henry's in the stands, the barrel, which landed near the Yankee dugout, was scooped up by the Yankee bat boy, who put it in the pile of Yankee broken bats. And as it turned out, right at that point, the Yankees strength and conditioning coach, Jeff Mangold, who was on the bench, said, wait a minute. That's the pile of broken bats they're going to throw out. They shouldn't throw it out. It's history. And he grabs that part of the Piazza bat and puts it up in his home office. And now it's 14 years later, and he wants to auction it off for charity. So he auctions it off, and I think, well, hell, it should be alongside the other piece of the bat, my other piece of the bat, the handle. So I win the auction. And there it is on my wall, complete with a baseball card showing Roger Clemens about to throw the barrel. Reasons left to your imagination. Two thirds of the famous bat. I'll sell it someday, I'm sure, but I'll always have the memories, my memories and John Henry's memories. And if you're wondering, no, unlike John Henry and I, that Yankee strength coach Jeff Mangold never tried to give it back to Piazza or get it signed by Piazza or auction it off for charity with Piazza. Which means that on top of everything else. Jeff Mangold is smarter than John Henry and I put together. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Follow this podcast if you can. Tell a friend. Tell Mike Piazza. We're number one among non-news outlet news and political podcasts, but I'd like to be whatever's better than that. Here are our credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray and produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, which was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc. Musical comments, courtesy of Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. And our announcer today was Tony Kornheiser. Everything else, pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 667th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. We'll have a new episode for you tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Ulverman. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Ulverman is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Psst, there's a shortcut to platinum status at Shell, to saving 10 cents per gallon on every fill every day. Just fill up six times with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline, and it's yours. Plus, you'll rejuvenate your engine. Get ready to level up performance, rewards, and savings. With continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors, Platinum Status is earned with 12 fill over three months, 10-gallon minimum per fill-up at participating Shell locations. Terms apply. Visit fuelrewards.com slash status.
2: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.